Good to see you all. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Good afternoon. Hope you're doing well. Uh, today we are finishing up our uh, mini series on the metaphors that the New Testament uses for the church. So I said it was a mini series. Okay, that's what I said. Kind of false advertising, I realize now, because we're nine sermons into this. My definition of mini is kind of different than. I guess what it actually means in reality. So sorry about that, but we're done today. Someone actually asked me last week, okay, when are we going to get back into the books of Samuel? So I could, I could feel the pressure and the heat on me to wrap this up. Uh, but hopefully it's been a blessing for you guys as it has been for me. I feel like as a church, we're kind of going into a new season a little bit. Uh, we're transitioning from a, uh, tiny church to just a small church. So it's kind of big for us. It's relative. But because of that, I feel like we need to make sure that we're kind of on the same page, that we're building a solid foundation. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. So we're finishing Ecclesia, this, this series on the images of the church today. And what we're doing is we're finishing with the most controversial of the night. It's not that controversial, but it's the most controversial out of all of them. So if you could open in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5. This might be a familiar passage to a lot of you guys. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read from verses 25 to 27, then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. I'll give you a sec to get there. <clears throat> This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church, and he says to the husbands, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, as she might be holy and without blemish. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and we know that it's your word that speaks. Your word is truth. Your word sanctifies us. Your word cleanses us. Your word reveals to us who you are. So God, I pray that during this time, it won't be my words. God, I pray that we, I won't be focused on what I have to say about things and that our church won't be focused on me, God, but I pray that our attention will be focused upon what you have to say. And God, I pray that your spirit would help us, that you would open up our eyes and our ears, that you would soften our hearts. And I pray, God, that as we close this series, Father, I pray that you would help us to have a right view of the church, that we might live the right way and so that we might love you. God, at the end of the day, it's about you. It's about us giving ourselves to you. And I pray, God, that you would draw us there during this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever loved something and wanted other people to love it too? You know what I'm talking about? You love something a lot and you wanted to share it with other people and you were hoping that they would share in your love for that thing. Maybe... It was when you first watched your favorite movie with your spouse, right? You're checking to see if he or she is paying attention or if they're on their phone. When they get up to go to the bathroom, you say, wait, I'll pause it. And then that's kind of a test to see if they're like, okay, pause it so I don't miss anything. If they say, don't worry about it, it hurts. 
for a lot of us as parents, right, we know that we want to pass on certain things to our kids, things that are important to us, the sports that we're into, maybe even certain hobbies or personality traits, even we want them to be uh, social like we are, whatever it might be. I think this is a big deal for a lot of parents. And I was actually reading a story about this, about this father and daughter. Okay, so Adam is the father, and he loved music. Okay, that was his thing. He loved all kinds of music, but there were certain songs that he liked in particular. So when his first daughter, Vivian, was born, he decided, he vowed in his heart that he was going to share his music with her. And part of it was selfish. He was like, I don't want to listen to these kids' songs. I don't want Baby Shark playing a thousand times a day in my home. If we're going to listen to music all day and all night, we're going to listen to music that I like. So when she was in the womb, basically, he started playing his favorite songs for her over and over and over. Okay, nonstop. He, he indoctrinated her with what, quote unquote, good music is, real music. Now, fast forward a little bit. When she was six years old, okay, this has been going on for six years. When she was six, what happened was he was playing his music, and then she started singing along. And she knew every single word to the song. And he realized that by the time she was six, she had memorized all of his favorite songs. She knew the melodies. She knew which word. She didn't even know what the words meant, but she knew the words to these songs. She had internalized all of it. And really, he felt like his dream was coming true. He was thrilled. And then he had an idea. See, the thing about Adam was it wasn't just a hobby for him, but he actually worked in the music industry. Okay, so he had some connections. He had a way to get into the studio. So he was like, why don't we record you, like, singing these songs, right? Do some covers. So they went to the studio. They had a great time recording these songs. She even came up with a name for herself, Jazz Wolf. I don't know if she sang jazz or not, but that's beside the point. But they, they started doing all this stuff together. They spent all this time together. Adam started writing original music for her to perform. They started gaining traction because of his connections. Real artists had heard about the Jazz Wolf, and they wanted to maybe record with her, and it was awesome. It worked. Adam had loved music so much, and now he had this daughter that he loved, and he had somehow been able to just pass it on. Now she loved music, or she loved his music, And by relentlessly kind of filling Vivian's eardrums with his favorite tunes, he had accomplished everything that he hoped for. Until one day, after a particularly rough recording session, both of them were really tired. They had just uh, had another baby in the house. So there was a newborn, and her sister was there, and no one was getting good sleep. And they went to the studio early in the morning, and it was tough. She wasn't really feeling it. They went outside, got in the car. And then Vivian said, hey, Dad, um, I don't really want to do this anymore. Now, as we start this talk, as we get into this sermon, how do you think Adam felt hearing that? Let's get our hearts in the right place. Okay, let's put ourselves in his shoes for a moment in preparation. Imagine you love something so much It's everything that you want to pass it down to someone else that you love. How do you think it feels to hear, I'm not really that into it? See, there's nothing like other people sharing your love for something, especially people you care about. That's why we share what we love with others. Years ago, the great author C.S. Lewis, he actually talked about this, at least in part. What he said is, we delight to praise What we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. 
Now, that might be an earful for you, but basically what he's saying is sharing about what you love is part of, of the loving process. Talking about what you enjoy, that completes the enjoyment. You want to share it. That's part of the fun. Holding it in feels wrong. And to go a step beyond what Lewis said, we also, after we share it, we hold our breath hoping that the people around us will share in it. There's something in us that wants others to love what we love, and when they don't, I mean, I think we all know it hurts a little bit. It stings. It feels a little bit like they're rejecting not just this thing, but they're rejecting us. Now, you might be thinking, Jesse, why are you bringing this up? What do you mean preparing our hearts? Well, today we're talking about love, specifically Jesus' love. See, here's a question for you guys. Does Jesus love the church? Does Jesus love the church? And a follow-up question for those of us who claim to have a personal relationship with him, who would even claim to love him, do you? Do you love the church? Do you love Jesus' church? See, the thing is, there's a disconnect in a lot of Christians' lives, even here in Texas, maybe especially here in Texas, because so many people are familiar with Jesus and the church. There's this disconnect where you got someone who openly loves Jesus, who proudly claims to be all about Jesus and having a personal relationship with him. But then when it comes to the church, they're lukewarm at best, maybe even disdainful. Now, if that's the case, what do you think Jesus feels about that? See, we're in Ephesians 5 where Paul instructs husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And this is the final metaphor. The church is the bride of Christ. Now, at Zoe, real quick, just for some context. Ephesians, okay, we preached this book before. In fact, this was the very first series we did as an official church. We went through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is an incredible book. I might even call it the craziest book in the Bible, maybe. Its structure is a thing of beauty, right? It's six chapters, and the first half is doctrine heavy. And if you dive into it, Ephesians is deep. Okay, the deep end of Ephesians might be deeper than any other part in the entire Bible. Just look at Ephesians 1 and try to wrap your mind around it. It'll blow your mind. It's crazy. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He takes us really deep, but then he takes us into everyday life. The second half of Ephesians is all about how out of that truth, out of that theology, out of that doctrine, we can live differently. It shows us how transformed lives grow organically from renewed minds. And here, toward the end of the book, Ephesians 5, Paul teaches on marriage, but undergirding this teaching is an analogy that marriage itself is but a picture. Okay, marriage is very important. Strong marriages are important for the church. You should work on your marriage. But don't, don't get me wrong. Okay, that's all important. But that's not all of it. Because undergirding marriage is what it means. It's a reflection of the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And this is where we end this series. So let's get into it. Three points, three headings to break down this final metaphor. First, a picture of love. Second, a promise of grace. Third, a person named Jesus. First, a picture of love, verse 25. A picture of love, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Okay, I, I said it. What we have here is an analogy. Husbands should love their wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church. But notice that Paul doesn't actually say that uh, the church is the bride of Christ. All the other metaphors we looked at, it just says it right there. Okay, the church is the household of God. But right here, it doesn't say it. If you look at the entire passage, just skim over it real quick. I'll save you the time. It doesn't say the church is the bride of Christ. And if you search the entire Bible, go on Bible Gateway or whatever, type in bride of Christ, those words together are not going to show up anywhere. So this is why the bride of Christ as a metaphor, as an image for the church is the most controversial one because if you push it a little bit, it's not explicitly biblical. So I went online, right, as young people like me do, but I went online, I went on YouTube, I searched Bride of Christ sermons, and literally like half of them were all about Bride of Christ exposed, right? Like why your pastor has been lying to you, oh, why you got to leave the church that's doing a series on the Bride of Christ. I was like, hopefully no one in our church watches this, but I better talk about it because all these articles talk about how the church is actually not like the Bride of Christ or how it's a Roman Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic thing. So if you're a Protestant, get out of there, or how it's heretical, or how it's illogical even. So before we talk about what this metaphor means, let's just establish real quick the legitimacy of why I'm even talking about it in the first place. So quickly, let me tell you why people are so against this. One, some people argue that the church cannot be the bride of Christ because that role is already taken. That role is taken by someone else. In fact, okay, I'm just going to show you this so you can you can know that I showed you, okay? Revelation 20, 21. Okay, second to last chapter in the, uh, in the Bible. Revelation 21. Keep your place here. We're not going to be here that, uh, that long, but just check it out. Revelation 21. What people point out is that in the book of Revelation, the bride of Jesus isn't the church, but it's actually the city, New Jerusalem. Now, this might be a little obscure for some of us. So let me just show you what the text says. Revelation 21.2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And if you skip down to verse 9. And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Okay, don't worry about that. It's very simple. Revelation, the entire book's simple. Don't worry about it. But after that, it says, And he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So, okay, Revelation is not the easiest book to understand. I was joking. We just got to set that out at the outset. But basically what it is, okay, the book in a nutshell, it's a vision given to the Apostle John about things that would take place after his lifetime. And at the very end of time, what he sees is a new Jerusalem, okay, the capital city of Israel coming down from heaven to earth. And what the angel calls it is the bride of the lamb. And who is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Jesus. So do some math there, okay, transitive property. Okay, the bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem. Therefore, what I'm teaching today doesn't matter at all. 
How can the church be the bride of Christ when right here in the text it says the city is? It's a good question. Hold that thought. Along this line of thinking, some turn to the Old Testament, not the end of the Bible, but the beginning of the Bible, and they'll point to books like Hosea, which we read in our scripture reading, and they'll say again and again in the Old Testament, it says that Israel is God's bride. The wife of Yahweh is the people of Israel. Hosea is about God's love for his wayward nation, using the picture of a broken marriage. So God already has a wife, they'll say. He's not a polygamist. He has Israel, not the church. And then other people will say, don't even worry about that. It's about logic, right? It's about logic. The church is the body of Christ, correct? How can you be married to your own body? Doesn't make sense. You can't be married to your own body. I read that in an article this week. So all this to say, sorry I brought it up. You know what? They're right. And let's just close in prayer. No, okay. I mean, these are good points. These are good points. I understand why all these articles and videos exist because people want to be consistent. They want to be biblical and they want to guard against some of the weird directions that people take this metaphor. Okay. Because sometimes people just run with this bride of Christ idea and worship songs sometimes get a little too romantic and stuff like that. And you can hear it sometimes on the radio. You're like, I'm not sure if this is about Jesus or my boyfriend or both. But the reason why we're including this in our series on the metaphors of the church is that it's a metaphor. Okay, it's a metaphor. That's all you need to know. That's the answer. In Ephesians 5, Paul is clearly using marriage language to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. He can use the metaphor in different ways. Jesus is the lion of Judah, right? Revelation clearly says that, but Satan also prowls around like a lion. They're both like lions in different ways. Paul is using the marriage language here. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, it's even clearer that we should be talking about this as a metaphor. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, the church, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. See, a metaphor, what is it? It's a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object to which it is not literally applicable. Now, that was a mouthful, but what it is, is a metaphor is not literal. Okay, it's a way to describe something, to teach us something. So, think about the argument. You can't marry your own body. Okay, is your body a temple? Okay, is your body a pillar of the truth? Can a flock of sheep be a body? How can you marry a city? I mean, you could just push this forever. Paul actually answers the thing about the body in Ephesians 5. He says, when you get married, two become what? They become one flesh. I heard people saying it out there. Paul says, love your wife as you love your own body, because in a sense, you are one person now. That's what marriage is. That's why it's the closest human relationship. So the relationship between Jesus and the church is a marriage just as the relationship between Jesus and the city just as the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. So all this to say, okay? We could talk about it more if you want afterwards. I think Eric would love to talk to you about it afterwards. But all this to say, the church is the bride of Christ. It says something about the relationship that Jesus has with us. It's a metaphor. So now you're wondering, Jesse, why do we spend all that time talking about it? Why do we go to Revelation? 
I didn't even have any questions about this until you introduced them into my mind. Well, okay, one, I know you guys. I know some of you guys. We're thinking about it. But two, the reason, the real reason I bring it up, we need to make sure we have a correct understanding of what this metaphor is. Okay? The church is not the bride of Christ in every single way. In fact, if you think about marriage, people get married for all sorts of different reasons, right? People get married for convenience sometimes. People have arranged marriages. Some people get married for lust. But it's, the, it's not the romance of marriage or the security of it or the practicality of marriage that's in play here. There's one specific thing. There's one comparison in particular that Paul is trying to make. And if you look at the text, what does it say? Husbands, what? Love your wives as Christ, what? Love the church. It's sacrificial love. Now, the thing is, this was written in Greek originally. And in Greek, there are different words for love. See, for us, love is kind of a general word, right? I love pizza. I love my wife. I love my son. I love this movie. Same word. Kind of different feeling, though. But in Greek, they have different words for different kinds of love. So you have phileo. Okay, phileo love is where we get the city Philadelphia. That's where the name comes from, city of brotherly love. It's brotherly love. It's the affection that you have for a family member or a friend. You like hanging out. You click. You connect. You have affection for this person. Then you have eros. Eros is the word for romantic love or intimate love. When we say that we fall in love, we're talking about eros. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. But neither of these words, as beautiful as they are, And even though they capture beautiful ideas, neither of these words are what Paul uses here. These words for how great they might be, they're not enough to capture the love that Paul is trying to teach us about. Because think about it, what's the reality? People fall out of love all the time. Do they not? A lot of times people say, you know, the reason why I'm getting divorced is because we fell away from each other. We fell apart. People change, relationships end, best friends can become strangers. You might have had so much affection for this person when you were young, and now you can't stand them. They annoy you. It's not eros or phileo. The word here is agape, love. And if you've been around church, you've heard this before, but agape means sacrificial love, a love that transcends and persists. That's what one person says. Regardless of circumstance or fleeting feelings, it's the greatest of all loves. So notice it says that Christ loved the church, past tense, he agaped the church. That's the picture. This is what the metaphor means, our final metaphor. It's a picture of love that's not wishful thinking. It's a picture of love that's not in word only. He doesn't just say, I love you. It's a picture of love that isn't fleeting, not something you can fall out of ever. It's a picture of love that's proven. It's established. It's unconditional. A picture of love that transcends and persists through everything. See, what Paul is telling us is that Jesus has set his heart on the church. Some of you might remember the late Robertson McQuilkin, or at least his story. Uh, He passed away uh, a few years ago, um, but he used to be the president of a Christian college, Columbia International, but he had to retire early um, for certain. Nothing bad happened. Well, something did happen, no scandal. See, what happened was, He was president of the university that he went to when he was younger. And while he was in college, he had seen this girl, okay, on campus. And he said that he noticed her right away because he thought her hair, her haircut was really cool, I guess, really pretty, I don't know. 
But when he got to know her, he realized she was, and this is his words, okay? She was delightful, smart, and gifted, and just a great lover of people, and more fun than you can imagine. So right away, okay, he had two kinds of love. He had Eros. He was attracted to her. There was kind of a romantic feeling. He was falling in love with her. There was Phileo. He just loved to be around her. He thought she was so fun. They began a relationship. They got married, enjoyed 30 wonderful years together. But then one day on a trip, she told the same story twice in a row. And he said, hey, you just said that. And she said, no, I didn't. And they kind of just laughed it off. But this started happening more and more and more. So they took her in to get some tests, and they found out that she had early-onset Alzheimer's. Now, at this point, Robertson was working his dream job. He was uh, the president of the college that he had gone to. He was doing all this ministry. He was being used by the Lord. And, of course, he had fallen in love with Muriel, his wife, so long ago. He had built his life with her, but the Muriel he fell in love with was disappearing. The things he enjoyed so much about her and their life together, they were fading away. So what did Robertson do? He chose agape. He made the difficult decision to step away from his post as college president, to give up everything in his own life that he loved. And he said the reason why was that he needed to be at home with his wife. He said that all those years before, he had set his heart on her, that he had vowed for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And it was time to live out those vows. And this story made waves. Why? Because a lot of people talk a good game about love. Do they not? Maybe you've heard someone in your life talk a good game, but how many people walk the talk? Robertson McQuilkin did, and it stood out. And yet, if you read the Bible, Ephesians 5.25, it doesn't say some special people will love like this. It says husbands, every single husband who has ever lived, You're supposed to love like this. Why? Because Jesus loved the church like this. And look at the text again. What did he give for her? See, the more valuable something is, I think you guys understand this, the more valuable something is, the more it costs to acquire it. Or rather, maybe the more valuable you think something is, the more valuable you consider something, the more you're willing to sacrifice to give it up. What does it say Jesus gave up for the church? himself, his very life. This is how valuable Jesus considers the church. He gave everything. So to end this point, okay, it's the longest point, just warning you, but to end this point, let me ask you a question. Okay, Jesus clearly loves the church. So how do we, and I'm talking to the Christians here, if you're just visiting or new, just understand that I'm talking to the Christians here, the people who say they love Jesus. How can we dismiss the church so easily? How can we complain about it so callously? How can we be so apathetic toward it? For a lot of Christians, small sacrifices feel like the worst thing in the world. And I preach to myself, oh man, I don't want to wake up early to do this. I mean, that's why we have church at 1.30, to make it easier for you guys. Jesus sacrificed his entire life for the church. What are we willing to sacrifice? How you view the church, whether you realize it or not, is a reflection of how you actually view Jesus in reality. How you love the church or don't love it is a reflection of how you love Jesus or don't really love him in reality.
And you know I preach to myself. So often church is just a job for me. So I preach to myself. The church, according to Holy Scripture, is valuable to Jesus. Now, that being said, don't get me wrong. It's not because the church is so great. This is not a rah-rah, we're awesome kind of message. The church is not worthy of this love. And that's the second point. You think that we're pointing to Jesus, uh, pointing to us, but really we're pointing to Christ. I actually changed the name of this point. So I think I said a promise of grace, but instead a pursuit of beauty. A pursuit of beauty. So we have a picture of love, but then we see what Jesus is doing, a pursuit of beauty. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So what is Paul saying? Jesus didn't die for the church because the church was beautiful. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying he died so that the church would become, so that he might make the church beautiful. In fact, if you look here, the word sanctify. Sanctification is a theological word. There's a lot of layers to it, but at the simplest level, it means set apart. He set the church apart. And this is very significant. The church wasn't set apart before. The church wasn't so beautiful, the most beautiful girl in the room. Jesus died to set the church apart. Look, you might have heard uh, this passage preached before on marriage, kind of telling husbands, you got to get your act together. And that is what the passage is about, primarily. That a husband should love his wife with a sanctifying, purifying love, like how Christ loved the church. But we're talking about the underlying idea here. Okay, this is not about uh, the practical application for husbands. I want you to think about the underlying implication here. The fact that the church needs to be sanctified and cleansed implies what? The church ain't all that great on its own. Okay? The church isn't already sanctified and clean. The church isn't already beautiful. The church is messy. The church is a work in progress, as we talked about last week. All this to say the church is not easy on the eyes. Think about this. Okay, go back to Robertson McQuilkin for a second. I was reading what he wrote earlier this week again, just to remind myself. And he's an amazing example. Don't get me wrong. Okay, he's a great example. It's a moving story. But he said, even though the Alzheimer's was extremely difficult, and I'm sure it was, he said, She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. He said, duty can be be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. It is an honor to care for so wonderful a person. And he said, even though she lost her memories, even though it was so hard, she still had a wonderful personality, and that made it a little easier. See, sometimes you might think, that that's how it works. You know, how easy it is, how great this person is. But when it comes to the church, you got to blow those categories up completely. Because what does Romans 5 say? Well, it says that it's rare, but sometimes someone might die for a good person. Do you remember that? So sometimes, you, you know, you might die for someone that you really care about. But it says that Jesus, or rather God, demonstrated his own love for us in this, that he sent Christ to die for us while we were What? Still sinners. See, okay, think about the first point, our attitude toward the church. What reasons do we have for having negative attitudes toward the church? I mean, of course we got reasons. 
bad experiences. Maybe that church, right? They were so judgmental. This church, they're so worldly. Uh, this other church, not evangelistic enough. This church didn't have enough people willing to serve. That church, unfriendly. It just goes on and on and on. Are these real problems? Definitely. Okay, I don't think any church is even close to perfect. But are they unexpected? Not at all. And should they be reasons, or might I say excuses, for not loving the church? Well, how did Jesus love the church? If there's one person in existence who deserved better when he walked into a relationship, it was Christ. Literally perfect. If anyone was allowed to have impossibly high standards, it was Jesus. But he set his heart on the church, knowing full well what a mess we were and would be at the outset. See, for Jesus, the ugliness of church isn't a deal breaker. We need to think about church in a different way. Instead of focusing on the beauty, inherent beauty, or the inherent ugliness of it, agape doesn't take those things into account. Look, if we can grasp this, this is one of the most beautiful things about what the church is. Not that the church is beautiful. Okay, we got to think in a different way. But that Jesus loved the church when it wasn't and loves the church now to make her beautiful. This is how we can approach the church. And this is powerful. In fact, is there anything on earth more powerful than someone knowing the worst things about you and yet still loving you anyway? I mean, look, okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've all felt the pain of rejection before, right? In some way, someone took a real good look at us, decided that we weren't good enough, whatever it might be. I mean, honestly, when that happens, it makes you not want to open up to anyone ever again. It reminds me of this movie that I never watched, okay? But I actually learned about it from a pastor who had watched it and was talking about it in a sermon. But I was like, oh, that's a good sermon illustration. So I'll take it. This movie came out. Years ago, Robin Williams was in it. So if you want to like picture what it looks like in your mind, you can picture. Don't picture Mrs. Doubtfire. That's not the movie. Robin Williams is in it. And what happens in the movie is he asks out a girl from work. And I don't know the full context, but you don't need to know all of it. They go out on a date, and the date goes pretty well. Okay? And at the, end of, at the end of the date, he wants to ask her out on a second date, okay? as you might expect, when he tries to talk to her about it and bring it up, she shuts him down right away. And she says, no thanks, right? I had a great time, thank you, but it's okay. Okay, we don't need to talk about that. He said, I'll see you at work. But he persists, and he keeps persisting. He's like, no, 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 I mean, how about next week, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, okay, look, let me just lay it out for you. And this is the kind of honesty, I think, that drives people away a lot of times. But she says, look, this happens all the time. I know once you get to know me for real, right? You're, you're not going to like me anymore. You're going to find something about me, something about my personality. One of my flaws is going to come out and you're going to reject me. And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of rejection. I don't want to deal with this kind of stuff anymore. This is how dates go. I'm done with relationships. But Robin Williams says, but I do know you, right? We work together. I've known you so long. And in the kindest way possible, he's like, I do know your flaws. He's like, I know that you feel awkward sometimes. I know that you're self-conscious about being clumsy. I know these things are, I've seen you, but I still want that second date. And she just looks at him like he's a miracle. She asks him, are you real? And 
here's the thing. This is just a tiny, okay, a small facsimile, a tiny illustration of what Ephesians 5 is trying to communicate to us, that Christ loves the church even though he knows her. Someone once said to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. doesn't mean anything. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's what it means to be loved by God. This truth alone makes the church potentially the most wonderful place on earth. The church isn't the place you go after you've gotten yourself put together. The church is the place you go to get yourself put back together because you know that Christ has set his love on you. If you want to know how, look at the text. The washing of water with the word. We're not here to hear about how great we already are. We're here to be washed to become better. See, in ancient times, a bride would take a special bath before her wedding. It wasn't so much about cleanliness. You're like, of course, man, I took a shower before my wedding. It's not about that. It's symbolic. It's kind of like how we wear white wedding dresses today. It's a a symbol of purity, of cleansing, of of being uh, totally uh, ready and pure for your husband. This is the image. In the same way, the church is washed not with water, but with the word. We gather together to hear the word And to hear it preached and read, God cleanses us through this and he makes us better. We're reminded of who we are in Christ, how much he loves us. We're we're reminded of the gospel and how we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. See, the truth is there are judgmental people in churches. There are churches that struggle with evangelism. Some churches are worldly. Some churches are unfriendly. Churches are imperfect. They're filled with sinners. But the truth underlying that is that Jesus loves the church. And through his word, he's building it up. Look, you know, today we're starting up our evangelism ministry. I think you guys know this. And I don't, we don't really know what it's going to be like. Uh, we'll see. And we know they're, they're going to evangelize. Um, but we're still seeing who's going to sign up and kind of how it's going to play out. Uh, hopefully you guys can go. Uh, I think you have to sign up, actually. So I think James is watching every single one of the kids. So... Have mercy on him. But the thing is, right, they're going to go out and they're going to share the gospel with people who don't know Christ. They're going to share the good news about how to be saved from your sins, how to be brought into a relationship with Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's not about becoming a religious person, first and foremost, to earn your way to God. It's about how Jesus did everything for you by dying on the cross with his blood, paying the price for your sins. They're going to tell people that, and Lord willing, people will respond and become Christians. Or at least respond and be open to hearing more. Or at least respond and come to church. And the thing is, when they come to church, hopefully they do. They're going to be people who don't know that much about the Bible. Right? They're going to be people who might still be living in some major sin. It might be people who don't know the Christian lingo. It might be people who don't really fit in with kind of the culture that is formed and developed here at Zoe. But if they come here looking for Jesus, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, will they find him and his love here? 
Will they be able to see in us, the church, a, a small, tiny facsimile, a, a, a tiny illustration of the gracious love that is bountiful in Christ, a love that is set on people who don't deserve it? In fact, Jesus doesn't even ask that question. Will they see a people transformed by this love? Will they see a church becoming more beautiful? Will they see, what I'm asking is, will they see that this is all real? Jesus loves the church, and he doesn't love the church because she's beautiful, but to make her more beautiful. Now, what's this all about in the end? Let's close this out. Third point. A person named Jesus. And that's the point. Okay, it's not about anything else except for a person named Jesus. Verse 27, though, let me show you. Husbands, love your wives. Actually, we'll start from 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Present the church to himself. In ancient times, a bride would take a special bath before her wedding. It wasn't just to be physically clean. It was symbolic, kind of like our wedding dresses today. Some of you guys are like, I think I heard this somewhere before. I'm not sure where. Why am I bringing this up? Why the bath? Why the wedding dress? So that when the bride appears in the doorway on that special day, she looks perfect. You've been to weddings. You know how it goes, right? You guys been to weddings? The bride walks down the aisle. It's kind of just like this. She walks down the aisle, maybe with her father or something, and everyone stands up, and your eyes are looking at the bride, and you kind of turn, and you follow her as she walks down. Now, I've done a few weddings, not like a million, but I've done a few weddings in my day. And the thing is, when I'm standing up here doing the wedding, officiating it, the groom is like right here in front of me, okay? So I basically have the same view that he has, I'm like looking over his shoulder a lot of times, unless he's huge, right? Then I'm like, you know, but I'm looking the way that he's looking. And the thing is, when his bride appears in the doorway, you can tell that for them, there's no one else in the room but them, right? They're just looking at each other. There's music playing. All these guests are here. There's flowers. It's a perfect moment. But in their eyes, you can see that it's about, for him, his bride, and for her, it's about her husband-to-be. She is his without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and he is hers, and he's waiting for her. See, why this image? Why this metaphor? Why does Paul talk about it? Yes, to talk about marriage, to help you to have a better marriage, but there's more than this. There is a truth. There is a doctrine, a theology about church that's embedded in here. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia. Remember, we talked about this the first week. It's not a word for an organization, first and foremost. It's, a, it's not a word for an institution. It's a word for a people. It's the assembly of God. See, using this metaphor, what Paul is communicating to us is that For God, for Jesus, it's always been about him and these people that he loves. You see what I'm saying? Read it again. Jesus presents the what to himself, the church who is the people. It's always been about the people. And if you think about this, if you're part of the church, it's always been about us. It's always been about us, and not in a self-centered way, but about us and him. Look, we've talked about all these different things in this series. 
a lot of convicting things, a lot of challenging things. We need to stand up for the truth because the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Make sure your theology is right, that we don't go off in any heretical directions. We talked about how the church is a flock of sheep, how we're supposed to follow and submit to Jesus and his, uh, his leadership, his leading. We talked about how the church is a body and how we're all gifted in different ways and we need to serve. Okay, Every Christian should be part of the body, giving of what God has given them to others. We talked about how the church is a household. We talked about how the church is a temple. All these different things. There are all these takeaways, ways in which you need to grow maybe, ways in which we need to grow as a church. But at the end of the day, ultimately, it's not just about doing things. Okay, as if doing things is all that matters. It's not just about showing up on a Sunday and punching in and clocking out. It's not about joining a community group only or reading theology only. The end of all of this is that you would have a personal relationship with Jesus. Not just in word, but in reality. See, what Jesus wants at the end of the day isn't your stuff. It's not your money. It's not your time. Not by themselves. It's not your gifts. He wants you. You know, I heard a guy share once about how when he was a freshman in college, he sat down in class one day, and the person sitting next to him was older than everyone else. Okay, she was in her 20s. She was a single mom. And he just got to talking to her a little bit before class. And uh, she didn't know anything about God. So he's like, okay, even though it might be weird, I'm going to share with her the gospel a little bit. And she was pretty open. She wanted to hear more about it. He said he and some of his friends could maybe babysit for the kid. You know, they just wanted to reach out a little bit. So they try to do this, try to be a good uh, witness to her. Um, and then one day there was a Christian concert that was happening and they, they uh, had some connections with it, I guess. And they had this ticket and they're like, hey, you should come with us to hear this Christian concert because they know that there's going to be good music and hopefully good music. And they're going to hear something, some kind of message or devotional or whatever. So they invited her to come and she goes and she doesn't know anything really about what it means to live for God. She's kind of living in this, she's kind of made some bad decisions. She, she's living with some some baggage. Okay, we'll put it like that. So they go to this concert, and they hear the music, and then the preacher comes out, and he's going to talk about purity, okay, or something along those lines. And he has this rose, and you might know this, okay, it's kind of a famous illustration, but he has this rose, and he's like, oh, this rose is so beautiful, right? It's so nice. It smells so good. And he says, I want you guys to be able to experience how great this rose is. And he throws it out into the audience, and then he, he just leaves it out there, and he starts talking about other things. He starts talking about holiness and purity. And, and he said, and those are fine things to talk about. But then he says, at the end, okay, he says, where's my rose? Is it out there still? And some kid has it. Kid brings it up, and the rose is all, like, messed up because it was just, like, out there. He threw it. People had been, like, handling it and stuff. It's all wilted. And his big point was, look at this rose. Okay, look at this rose. This is what happens when you give yourself to the world. When you make sinful decisions, when you, you aren't pure, this is what you look like to God. And then he was like, who would want this rose? Therefore, be holy so that God would want you. And this kid and his friends are like, no, no way is this the message. This cannot be it. This is the opposite of the gospel. This is the anti-gospel. He said he wanted to stand up and shout, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the cross. He didn't love us because we're lovely. He didn't die for us because we were perfect. He died for us because we weren't. And I share this because we might still miss the center of all of this. 
this whole series, this whole sermon. So I just want to make it clear, even after two points and many hours of me talking to you guys. At the end of the day, what this is all about, what church is about, Christianity is all about, where all of time is heading to, where Revelation 21, at the end of the Bible, at the end of time, where it's all going to is you and Jesus. He doesn't need us. That would be heretical. God needs nothing. Jesus wasn't lonely. So the fact that he has set his heart on the church, namely the people that is us, despite our flaws and weaknesses and sins and failings, it's not out of obligation. It's a choice because he wanted to. He wanted to. He wants to because he wants you. Look, I hope and pray that you guys would serve. It's important, you know, that we support church and that we give of ourselves and of our time. I hope you guys have good relationships and that you enjoy it. I hope that our church is able to do good ministry. I hope that our evangelism ministry is successful and that people come to faith. But don't miss out on the end of all of that. That because of grace and mercy and agape love, God in Christ actually wants to have a relationship with sinful, broken human beings like you and me. I hope and pray that we would understand who we truly are as the church. That we would grasp that as we live as the church, we are simultaneously, in a sense, walking down the aisle towards someone who desires to have our hearts as well. It's a miracle. I pray that a fire would be lit in us. I hope that as we reflect upon this truth, that the person who loves us and gave himself up for us is right here to be known, that you would pursue that. It's about us and him, a person named Jesus. We'll close with this thought. Vivian, remember she told Adam, her dad, I don't really want to do this anymore. She had actually been thinking about this for a long time. She had different tastes than her father. She's six years old. Okay, She doesn't want to be playing these oldies and singing these oldies all the time. So she tried to share with him some of the music she liked. And he was like, nah, 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 that's not good music, you know, kind of dismissing her. So she was like, okay. So she had been thinking a long time about how can I tell my dad this? How can I break the news to him? Finally, she waited until... You know, there was like the right moment in the car where it was just them, and she she told him. But the main reason she didn't want to tell him was because she didn't want to lose this time with him. You know, like she had other siblings, but this was kind of like special time that she had with just her and her dad. So she, she held off, but then she did it. When she finally told Adam, I asked you guys to think about how he felt. Clearly, he was devastated and disappointed. But he said, honestly, though, it was kind of a wake-up call. He said, I wasn't disappointed in her so much as as I was disappointed in myself. See, he had gotten carried away with his own dream, the stuff, you know, the music, at the expense of his daughter. And now he felt regret that maybe because of him, because he pushed her too hard, because he tried to pour all of his dreams onto her, that he would lose this time with her. And so he let go of his dream. He rebranded, you could say. Instead of being her writer, instead of being the person who fed her music and kind of managed her, he decided to become instead her biggest fan and biggest supporter. And that's really it. See, with church, okay, as we end this series, with church, ultimately it's not about 
the programs. It's not about the preferences, the problems, the growth, the ministries, the service, the structure, your dreams for the church or my dreams. Church is what it is. It's a temple. It's a flock, a pillar and buttress of the truth, a body with many members, the household of God, God's field, God's building, God's people. But what this final metaphor teaches us, the bride of Christ, what it reminds us is that the most important thing out of anything is our relationship with him. That we would show up for him. That we would get involved for him. That we would serve for him. That we would give for him. Because he has given so much to us already. We are a sinful, broken, imperfect people, but chosen and precious and being made into something new and beautiful by the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ. So as we turn away from the series, don't turn away from the church. Don't be apathetic or despise these people that Jesus has set his heart on and even bled for. Let's show up and spend ourselves. Let's receive the immense blessing and privilege it is to be called the church of the living God. Let's lean into being the bride of Christ. Will you pray with me? God, what an incredible thing it is to know that you love us. May we never take that for granted. And God, we know ourselves. God, we know our sins. We know who we are. We know how we fall short. Sometimes we fear that we could never be loved. But then we look to your word and we look to the person of your son. And we see what real grace and what real mercy looks like. So God, I pray that everything we do in church will be a response to that. That we will live out of that, out of that knowledge and acceptance that even though we are unworthy, Jesus is gracious. And God, I know that we'll move on to other things in your word, wonderful things. But I pray, God, that as we leave this series, that we will treasure what we have in the church. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.